Welcome to Daybreak Devotions, a podcast version of the daily radio ministry of the McLeansville Baptist Church with your host, Pastors Mike Barnett and Corey Cantrell. And welcome one and all back to the Daybreak Devotions program brought to you by the McLeansville Baptist Church. This is Pastor Corey Cantrell alongside Pastor Mike Barnett. Good from, morning. From McLeansville Baptist. And we are excited to join you today on this very special Friday broadcast. Not a Friday fun day broadcast, but I'm really looking forward to diving into the topic that we have today because it's one of those that if you really listen, if you really open your heart to engage in, in the discussion of, you're going to leave convicted, you're going to leave in awe, but you're also going to leave encouraged and joyful. We just want you to leave. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not Maybe not leave is the best word, but Who, it's, it's going to do a lot for you. Who's mowing the yard at 6.30 in the morning? You know what? <laughs> you got to do it when you can. Uh, everybody's schedule's different. Guy probably works third shift job or something like that. I, I want to say this, though. Uh, letting you introduce this is showing me how difficult it is to know when my cue to speak is. It's very difficult sometimes because you're like, maybe now, nope, nope, maybe now, nope, nope. But, hey. We're going to master hand and eye signals before it's over. That's right. Either that or just learn how to speak sign language, one of the two. Which would not make for a great radio broadcast. No, it would not. But we are glad that you're here today, and we hope that you enjoyed... Uh, our special programming last week and in the early part of this week, we were doing a little bit of talking beforehand about the intensity of last week's events altogether, um, from the, both the radio broadcast to some of the written things that were presented and the emphasis in the church. Last week was a very, very, very involved week, but it was rewarding, especially come Sunday. And then to have the opportunity this week to really focus in on you know, the the aftermath of the resurrection. You know, some of the things that could have been in the disciples' heart and in the disciples' mind. And in fact, you spoke a little bit about that um, in a portion of the message Wednesday night, and that's going to kind of kick off a little bit of our discussion today, if you want to recap that a bit. Well, the premise of this week and the message on Wednesday night was, in a nutshell, how can I have a bigger heart for God? Because like the disciples... We've talked about, and you're alluding to, um, I have spent time this week trying to think about this. And let me just insert a thought right here. I think that could explain some of the challenges of the week right there. Because one thing I noticed early on, I would get drawn into this thing of, you know, the disciples had a lot to think about in this week after Jesus had been crucified and now he's resurrected and appeared. But that must have been really intense for them. And then I would find myself not giving the time to it that I wanted to. Again, there's distractions, right? And it's almost like it's almost like a it's an extremely subtle opposition to trying to do this that you can't quite put a finger on, but I have felt that this week. And so coming back to it, you know, the disciples must have had some pretty intense thoughts and as you think through all of that, you're thinking here at the, at the end of it all, I want to be close to God. I want to have a heart for God. I want to have a bigger heart, but I am so easily distracted or so easily given to my weaknesses. And and the, sh the long and short of it is this, I need a bigger heart for God. 
And when we observe Jesus going through the Passion Week, we journeyed with Jesus all through the Passion Week, that's something that I think leaps out to us is the heart of Jesus, and we want to be more like that. Wednesday night, I shared some reflections from Psalm 119 and verse 32. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. My conclusion is that my heart for God is too small, and I want to have more of a heart for God like Jesus had. So there were three things that I highlighted about how Jesus had such a huge heart for God. And let me state these and then connect them all. So first of all, I, I just pointed out how he lived daily in his purpose to do the will of God. So many scriptures in the Gospels tell about that. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. You know, I, I do nothing that he doesn't tell me to do. I don't say anything unless he tells me to say it. I, I love those passages. And so he lived daily in his purpose to do the will of God. He observed his world through the lens of God's story. That is something we're not very good at doing as, as Christians today. Now, I'm saying that generally. I don't mean that specifically to you or me or any listener. But in general, I don't think Christians do a good job of that. I think we observe our world through the lens of our political persuasions and through the lens of our ideologies and even our theologies, but not theology based upon the real story of God. Right. But Jesus did. Everything was viewed through that lens. And the third thing he did was he saturated his soul with the Word of God. He was very much, that. you know, we were just talking about it before we started, 40 days and 40 nights he was in the wilderness tempted of Satan. But he uses the word of God there. Why? How? Because it was just supernaturally instilled into him as the son of God? No, but because as a boy, he learned the scriptures and he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And he was in the temple at the age of 12, astounding the religious leaders because he had grown up like other Jewish boys learning what the Bible says, their scriptures at the time, the Torah and the Pentateuch. I said that that way on purpose because I thought it would be like a little shout-out to Friday Funday. Oh. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but he learned the Scriptures. He lived in them. He meditated in them. He memorized them. Let me ask that question out loud. How much memorization of Scripture do we do these days? And and I got it. On one hand, we've got, we've got the Bible on every corner. We've got apps on our phones. We can listen to it. Thank God for that. And perhaps in some ways it's not as... Now, hang with me. It's not as necessary to memorize it as it would have been, say, for someone who didn't have a personal copy of Scripture. But thy, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee tells us the importance of memorizing Scripture. Sure. Jesus had done all of this. Now, so how do we connect all that, those three things, to a heart that's overflowing with the glory of God because that's ultimately what we're after? Well, the purpose of man, Jesus lived in his purpose, but the purpose of man is to glorify God. I mentioned Wednesday night, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the purpose of man is what? Do you remember? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Yes, very good. You get an A. All right. If this was Friday Fun Day, we'd have the applause track yep. on there. But that's, that's right. And that was the agreement of those early church fathers that this is the whole purpose of man. We were made to bring glory to mm -hmm. God. We're image bearers. Well... The lens of God's story is the glory of God in creation and redemption. That's the story God is telling. So all the way back at the beginning when he created the world, it, it is created to testify to his glories we're going to talk about today. But the story of redemption, all the way back to rescuing uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, that story is told over and over and over again in the Bible. Why? Because it tells us of the glory of God in the story of redemption. And then thirdly, the Scriptures declare for us, along with the creation, the glory of God. But what the Scriptures do 
is they make it they make it more personal. But what I mean by that is they make the scriptures make the glory of God applicable to our human experience. Mm-hmm. Now, the glory of God in the heavens, we're going to read Psalm 19. The glory of God in the heavens is applicable to my human experience when I look up and see it. But as Psalm 119 is so, or Psalm 19 is so wonderfully uh, written and, and laid out, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, but then you get the word of God, you know, in that psalm being explained of how it rejoices the heart of man. It's almost like creation is just saying what it's saying because that's what it was created to do. But the word of God speaks it directly to my heart. Yeah, because the end of Psalm 19 is is talks about how, you know, by them is thy servant warned, and the mm-hmm. keeping of them is a great reward. And he closes with the prayer, let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable thee. So speaking of Psalm 19, that's where we're going to go and connect these dots. So Psalm 19, verse 1 through 5, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Love that verse because it says to me, you know, we've been talking about in the church how we need to get the Bible translated into every language so people have the scriptures. Every language already has the the, the, the declaration of the heavens. And it says in verse 4, Their line has gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. The declaration of the heavens is that God is the supreme and glorious master craftsman of the universe. That is what it is saying. These verses, and I didn't read verse 6, it kind of closes that out, but these verses are are basically declaring to us how glorious God is. That's that's the testimony of, of the heavens and the firmament. Now, picture yourself sitting beneath the night sky. You're looking up at the thousands of stars. You know how that works. You first look up at a clear sky at night, you see like, oh, there's like five stars in the sky. And then you keep looking, and all of a sudden the sky starts filling up with stars. Mm -hmm. The longer you look, the more you see. Now picture you're there underneath that night sky looking up at the thousands of stars, and you ask yourself, what are the heavens saying to me right now? What are they declaring about God's glory? Now if you were to think about that, What is, in other words, the message of the heavens? Now, this is important because in a moment I'm going to bring out what has been the message from the pulpits of churches for the last few generations. Compared to when we look up in the heavens, what is the message that they are declaring? For me, when I consider that question, you see the vastness and the magnitude of God. It's so easy when we focus just on our lives to think, small scale, and lose sight of you know the proverbial big picture, when you look up at the heavens, you can't help but realize that the big picture is even bigger than what you thought the big picture was. You just can't grasp the scope of the awesomeness of God. And I, I think that word awesome or awesomeness lost some of its power yeah. during the 80s, mm-hmm. maybe the 70s too, but certainly when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles rolled around. Yeah. But it really is the right word. Awesome. It is. It is a. It is a declaration of of the all that God is, and that we should experience in Him and from Him. When you look up at the heavens, who are proclaiming the glory of God, and you ask, "What are they saying to us?" And, and you're right. I agree with 100 percent what you said. 
it's clear that they're not offering three points in a poem. Mm -hmm. And I'm not knocking structured preaching now. But think about the topics of the preaching that we often get, and it seems to be less than what the heavens are saying. I think when you look up at those heavens at night and you see the, the stars and you see the moon, I think what it is saying to you is see how great God is. See how beautiful God is. See how mysterious God is. See how holy God is. And I believe that is the message of the heavens. Now, what are they asking me to do? When they're declaring their message to me, what are they asking me to do? Put yourself in the shoes of the guy or the maybe with no shoes, the tribesmen living in some third world country who looks up and sees the same sky, the same moon, the same stars. And, and he has seen that. What, is, what are they asking him to do? They're asking him to do the same thing they're asking us to do. Ask why and seek the source. Seek? Is a, yes, exactly. They're, they're, they're bringing to the heart the, the big questions of what matters most. Mm -hmm. And when we know then from the scriptures and the testimony of those who have come to know Christ, as Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 19 continues to flesh out, what they're asking me to do is simply just be amazed and worship God. Yes. That's what they're asking. They're saying, God is great. God is holy. You ought to just stand here and be amazed. As a matter of fact, do like us and shut your mouth and just be overwhelmed by what you're seeing. Bask in the glow of his glory. It's an experience. Yes. It is not just sight. It is the experience of the magnitude of God coming into our soul. And it's so liberating because that's not, it's not an action that we do. It's not something that we conjure up. We're just there for it. We, we are a, an engaged observer. We are engaged in that we have presented and brought our heart to what all of the rest of creation is doing, and we're just joining in on the celebration of the splendor of God. We present our heart, mm -hmm. but God enlarges our yes. heart by that experience. Yes. You cannot really look into the heavens and expose your heart to that glory and not have your heart enlarged. I love, and I, I think you were referencing um, a portion of a message, um, but Wednesday night, I won't quote it exactly verbatim, but my takeaway from it was, you said, what's the, what's the purpose of the vastness of the cosmos and all that's out there? It is literally just God's way of saying, look at how great I am. It is God putting himself on display. And when, you know, when, when I heard that and, and, I, and I sat back and thought, you know, it'd be real easy for somebody to erroneously say, boy, isn't that kind of narcissistic of God to do that, just to do this great thing to display his glory? But that's somebody that doesn't know the heart and the loving nature of God, the way that he displays his glory, and it's his way of pouring out his love on everything that he has created. He is so intimately connected with his creation, and it shows he is grand, he is mighty, but he is then intimately involved with the smallest elements of creation. You can't help but love a God like that. You're right, and we will make that point again in a moment, but I would just offer also the thought that what if God did it all just to say, I'm great? Yeah. Because what are you going to say to that? You're yeah. going to say, well, like, that's awfully prideful of God. Really? We can't accuse God. 
You, God cannot be prideful. He is everything. Yeah, we, we celebrate people that do that kind of stuff. Artists or, or sports figures, different people that kind of have that flamboyant flair. And we'll kind of chuckle like, well, hey, when you're the greatest of all time, you can kind of get away with stuff like that. Who is like unto God? But they're they're not the greatest of all time. Yeah, who, God is, and who so is there's nobody him? for him to be insecure around or to uh, pride. I've not thought this out, so I'm kind of just doing this live and in color here. Pride has to have some sort of opposition, I think. Like a prove it yes, nature it to it. It has to be some, and there is none that is equal to God. I'm going to read that in just a moment in the scriptures. Here's the thing, though. We don't want to lose sight of the glory of God. That, that's, what, that's why it's there. Because when we do lose sight of the glory of God, our hearts become filled with lesser things. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know the clock's ticking all the time, and we won't get to say everything we want to, but this, this makes me have to go to Romans 1, and I, I don't have a lot of time to read the whole chapter. But Romans chapter 1 gives us the warning about this. In the latter part of Romans chapter 1, it says that, in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, you got to understand, it makes it clear, Paul's making it clear, that the knowledge of God is a universal thing. There really are very few true atheists in the world. You almost have to be a fool. Mm-hmm. You almost have to be not have a working capacity to not think that there is a God. And so it says that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And look what they did. Changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so this is what happens when we lose sight of the glory of God. Our, our heart and our life begins to fill up with these lesser things. And we begin to major on things that have no value whatsoever. No eternal value and very little temporal Temporary. value. Mm-hmm. And just think about what we hear Christians talk excitedly about. Okay, Let your mind, listener, let your mind run back over conversations you had at church this week or conversations you overheard at church this week. And let's, hey, let's think about our own conversations we had. What do we, what do we tend to get real excited about? All right, and we could put a list together. We could talk about the vacations. We could talk about new jobs, new cars, new houses, new spouses. We could talk about uh, uh, sports teams and championships and, and uh, the latest gizmos and gadgets. We get real excited about that stuff. I asked the, in the church Wednesday night, you know, what do people even people in church tend to have a big heart for. And this was the list that was given, right? See if, see if I remember. Sports, mm-hmm. Marvel movies, mm-hmm. and food. Yeah. And you can add to that whatever the latest I thing is that's come out. So the, that's what we get excited about. But even put it in a religious context. Put it in the church context. What do people get stirred up about? And when you think about it like that, is it the glory of God or is it the glory of men? You know, oh, so-and-so is going to be preaching. Whoa, hey, I'm going to that meeting. Don't you want to go to that meeting? Why? Why should I? Oh, so-and-so's preaching. Now, what is that? Where is that coming from? It's coming from a celebration of men. Right. And I'm not, I don't want to detract from that there are good, solid, 
Bible preaching, Bible teaching men of God that are helping our soul draw close to God, yeah, I want to go sit and listen to them preach. Mm-hmm. That's the guy I want to go listen to. But that's usually not why people are excited. They're stirred up about preaching that is on the low level of where they're living and what they're excited about. And I've, I've met some very good God-fearing men that, that they're not giving you the milk of the word. They're giving you strong meat. But they have, they've reached that celebrity status not by their own doing. And I think it reveals the heart of fallen man. Because even you take something good, something that is honoring God in what it is doing, and fallen man has the natural inclination to make an idol out of it, like what we read in Romans chapter number 1. Nothing wrong with four-footed beasts, nothing wrong with any of that. God created all that stuff, and in its functionality, it's wonderful. But when we put an undue emphasis on it, it's not the item's fault, it's ours. And the only way out of that, the only way to break that cycle is to get the church looking up again. Let me share a statement that was made by Albert, or it was made about Albert Einstein that I heard this week in a sermon that I was listening to. It was, come, it was written in a journal called First Things, and it was an interview with a guy by the name of Charles Meissner who was a uh, scientist, a uh, specialist in general relativity theory. And here's what he said about Al- Albert Einstein, who died in 1955. So put that in context, 70, almost 70 years ago. He said, I do see the design of the universe has essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he had run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. And when you read that, you think about, well, number one, you think about our responsibility as preachers, that we're proclaiming something less than the glory of God. Yeah. And we're proclaiming what? We're proclaiming our our heritage, our tradition, our ministry. We're declaring our convictions. We're declaring it's our, 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 right? It's what we do, what we stand for, what we believe, you know, who we're against. Right. And we're not declaring the glory of God. We're declaring the glory of man, which is like mud, mm-hmm. you know. So what I discern from that is that preachers aren't preaching the glory of God, but the heavens are declaring the glory of God, but we're just not looking up. We're looking down. Okay, we talked about that the other day. We're all looking into our cell phones all the time. We're all walking around with our head in the proverbial cloud and in the uh, digital cloud, and we're looking at our screens, and the screen time continues to ratchet up, and the number of apps on our phones continues to climb, and we're not looking up. If we're not looking down, we're looking within. I heard the same preacher that was giving this talk about, and this was preached back at the end of the 90s, and he said that he believed that the 20th century was all about had been all about psychology and man trying to look within himself to get the answers to what was wrong with him. And he, he said, I believe the 21st century will be astronomy. He said, I believe that man will begin to look into the heavens because they're going to discover that their soul is, is built for something larger than the self. 
Okay, and they're going to be looking. Mm-hmm. And psychology can't answer the problems. Psychology can't help you prepare for death. I'm not against psychology. I'm very much for psychology. One of the men that I uh, respect a lot and read after, and I, I'll mention from him, is Dallas Willard. He was a professor of psychology, but he was a Christian. He was a yep. Bible, uh, a Bible man. But psychology doesn't answer the question. What answers the question is what you said about the tribal guy who looks up in the heavens. And nobody's ever preached the gospel to him, but he looks up at that moon and that sun and that stars, and he says, there, there, there's somebody out there. I was made for some purpose. What is it? Mm-hmm. Isaiah 40, verse 25 and 26, To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equaled, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Oh, 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 somebody said, well, what about those stars that are that are blowing up? Do you know, and I don't know a lot about stuff, but do you know why stars are blowing up? Because the universe is expanding, and I think that as it expands, the stars are naturally just being to create space. Now, that's a very simplified elementary, and I'm sure a, an astronomer would come in. There's an in astrophysicist and, somewhere yeah. that's sitting there going, ah. Oh, there goes those <laughs> preachers again. Well, trust me, what I'm trying to say is ultimately God's behind it all. Not one of them is failing. The universe isn't failing. God's got it all. Now, you take with that passage in Isaiah 40 I just read, this great passage from Psalm 147, verse 3 and 5. He healeth the broken in heart, and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars and calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Now, if I can preach to the church and I can say from the same text and in the same breath, the God who made every star, who knows the number of every star, who called them all and and calls them by their name, is the same one who touches your broken heart. Tell me how in the world that the people of God cannot say, God is great, yeah. but that matters more. That's what they need. That's what we should be preaching. I don't really, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care what Joe Biden did this week or what Trump did two years ago. It don't matter. Mm-hmm. I don't care. It don't matter. I want to know what God's doing. Yes. And the reason that we are not full of the glory of God and our hearts are not enlarging for God is because we're focused on these unimportant things. We are far too enraptured by the small story that we are losing sight and missing out on the big picture. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like when you're at a at a maybe a ball game or something somewhere and this amazing once in a lifetime play takes place. And you look over at the person next to you, and they're sitting there looking at an ant walking around, and you're like, oh, man, you missed this great spectacular thing because you were focused on on, on, on something small and distracting. What, 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 are, what are you doing? And we've got people that's doing the same thing. They're focusing on such small stuff that they are missing the grand display of a mighty God and his work. The only time the small things matter is in the context of the larger story, when they are helping us understand what God is doing. Yes. Outside of that, it's nothing but distraction. So what we need to do is call people back to the glory and supremacy of God in everything. That's what we need to do. Now, what we keep seeing as we go through the scriptures, all these different verses. As a matter of fact, earlier today, uh, I printed out 
every verse in the Bible that speaks about stars, and, and I think it was like 50-some, but as you go through and you look at the stars or the passages about the heavens, what you keep seeing is not only how big and mighty and inexhaustible God is, but they all bring us back to this truth of how merciful and tender and personal he is. It's amazing. It's like that's the theme of of the heavens. They're saying your great, glorious, mighty God is so merciful and personal that he is interested in you. Now, think about it. That's what David says in Psalm 8. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. And yet out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest steal the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? You want some, you want some psychological help? Right there it is. And if you go out there and you, you do like David and you behold the heavens and all that they are saying, and then you think about that. The God that made all of this is interested in me. Yeah. I just thought of a great song we could play. Me too. <laughs> Which one was it? Who am I? Oh. Well, that one will work too. What were you I was thinking, thinking of uh, He Knows My Name by the Rochesters. That's a great one as well. We may just play them all. <laughs> Where was I at? Anyway, okay, so let's do some scripturally scientific work here. All right. And I'm going to use Psalm 40 as a, as a point of doing this. Psalm 40, verse 12. I've preached from this chapter in years gone by. It's been a while, but maybe soon the Lord would let me do it again. Well, I'll do it today. How about that? All right. Psalm 40, verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who's done that? Who's, who holds it all in the palm of his hand? Now, in context, he's speaking really, I think, of just that which is our our earth, our planet, and, uh, and then maybe to the the you know into the the span of our solar system, but no big because he seems everything else seems to be centered around the earth itself, right? But here's the question: How big is our universe? Okay, we know God holds it all. How big is our universe? I read an article; it was published in NASA.gov. And that was the title of it: How big is our universe? Well, let's start with our own solar system. Our sun is 93 million miles away from Earth, and it is about a million times the size of the Earth. Okay, so that's big. Now, according to what I read, our sun is smaller than at least half of the other stars that are out there. So our sun is like a medium-sized star. NASA says it would take seven months to fly from Earth to the sun in a space shuttle. All right, seven months. 93 million miles. That's still moving pretty fast. Yeah. Now, our system, our solar system, is just one part of the Milky Way galaxy, okay, which is so big that if you were traveling at the speed of light, it would take 100,000 years to travel across. Wow. I tell you, this blows, this, this, this gets my heart every time. You think about how big that is. So here's what the article said. If our solar system were the size of a quarter, the sun would be like a speck of dust on that quarter. Mm -hmm. The planets orbiting around the sun would be about like the size, let's say, of the circumference of that quarter, okay? Question, how far away is the nearest star to our sun? 
Okay, our sun's the only star in our solar system, right? So how far away would be the next nearest star in our solar system? The name of that star is Proxima Centauri, and it too has a system of planets around it. It would be, how, how, how close is it? It would be like another quarter laying two football fields away from our quarter. Wow. That's just the next nearest star in our solar or our galaxy. Science has confirmed that there are billions of galaxies out there. Now just let that soak in a minute. How big is God? How big is God? I remember, I mentioned this in the church before, Brother Rick Hildebrand preached a message years ago in a youth meeting at our home church. We're talking 20-some years ago, and you know how few messages you remember over mm -hmm. the years. But I always remember this one because that was the, the, the title or the theme of his message was, How Much Does God Weigh? And he was talking about the glory of God. How big is God? How big is our universe, the article said? No one knows. But I add to this, except the one who holds it all together. By the way, how does he hold it together? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time. Man, I'm still getting kind of shook up about that. He heals the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. So let me ask you this, because the whole time you're reading this, I had two conflicting emotions and thoughts that have been going on. The whole time you're reading it, there's one that's that voice of an accuser. You know, you think about how big God is. Who are you? You're mm -hmm. you're a nobody. You don't matter at all. And there's like that that brief split second of kind of a discouragement where it's like, man, yeah, when you think about that, I'm nothing. But then the voice of the Spirit of God that speaks and says, no, you matter more to me than anything you can begin to wrap your mind around. And, and immediately the emotion goes from a downtrodden, wow, God, you're great and I'm nothing, to, wow, God, I'm nothing, but you are great. Mm -hmm. And to, to have the opportunity to have an intimate personal relationship with a great God like that, not just as a, a, a loving subject, but as a cherished son, as a, as, a, as a beloved friend. As a joint heir. Yes. What on earth am I concerned about what anybody down here thinks of me? To know that the God of all creation, of such a vast universe, calls me beloved and dear and precious, that's enough. What, what, will, what are we going to do with, uh, uh, what is it, what did it say, billions of galaxies out yeah. there? Well, I mean, we're joint heirs. Who knows? I may have a, a galaxy of my own one day. <laughs> uh, and now we're crossing into some yeah. of that funky stuff. Yeah, so but I'm saying he owns it all, and we're joint heirs with him. We are his... We are, we are kings and priests with our Lord. I mean, this thing it has great implications for us. And I think the part you were referring to that I said in the message about how when you think about how big the universe is, it shouldn't bother us that just one little tiny speck in that universe yes. is a place called Earth covered with mankind at which God gives his attention to. And we think, well, we're just a little old speck. you know. And, and, and he's, he was making the point in the message that 
that the point of that is is that we see it's not about us. Yes. It's about him. It's about how big he is and how glorious he is. And he's got a, and you know, it's just, we talk about this in some of the discipleship classes. You know, you look at the beauty of creation itself. You look at the thunderous waterfalls. You look at the lush uh, rainforest. And yes, they have a functionality, but they're not all necessary. Look at the, uh, look at the hummingbird. I mean, there, I wanted to do this and I didn't. I thought about it before the message on Wednesday. I was out mowing and kind of just, meditating on these things, and I thought, you know, I'm going to look up what the smallest animal is and the largest animals and, and just look at the diversity of what God made and make, you know, there's a point there that, what, what is the point of the hummingbird, you know? The point of it is just another expression of the heart of God. And every time we see these things, they should bring us back to the glory of God. He made all things. I was trying to work my way through Hebrews there, but he, he basically said, that he hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who it is. He made it all, and he holds it all together by his word. How big is the universe? Quarter, the nearest quarter is two football fields away, and that's just our galaxy. Yeah. All right? Jonathan Edwards, in the dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world, made this final analysis point. The great end of God's works, which is so very easily expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. Let me bring you back to Isaiah 40, verse 18, reading down. To whom then will ye liken God, or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth the graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as a stubble. To whom, will, to whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Now, if you got lost in my reading of all that, basically what he is saying is, is all these people that are creating all these graven images and all these wooden idols, and they're trusting in the, their own work, the works of their hands, or the, the princes, those who sit in powerful places. He said, do you understand all of that is nothing? I pick back up the reading. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. That is the glory of God. He not only made it all, he sustains it all. And this is the thing, it's an ever-expanding universe. I said something about that earlier. Here's where I picked up on that. Listen to this testimony by a man named Kent Harnett. 
he, uh, he, he studied physics and astronomy at the University of Delaware and then worked in NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center for 40 years. He retired as a science operations manager for the Hubble Space Telescope. And this was an article that he wrote called The Cosmos Keeps Preaching. It comes from that. He says, The Hubble mission alone has contributed immensely to our understanding of the cosmos. Who knew, for, for instance, that the universe was not only expanding but accelerating? Who could fathom that true planets around other stars are so commonplace that many can be detected through the periodic dimming of their stars when they pass in front of them? Indeed, many glorious attributes of God are now loudly and profoundly declared to us nightly from diverse space telescopes and ground observatories all around the world. Among the qualities demonstrably proclaimed are his intellectual genius, his endless creativity, his eternal power, his exquisite, beautiful, and purposeful craftsmanship, and his divine nature. That's just a part of that article. He goes on, there's one part where he talks about what I would just talk about, how the mysteries of God. He says, equally marvelous, it is undeniably the case that the deeper you look and the more you listen, his genius, creativity, power, and beauty only become clearer. Why is the universe expanding? We don't know, but he does. Scientists attribute to something they call, quote, dark energy. Dark because it's unknown. In addition to dark energy, there is evidence for the existence of an unknown type of matter that is gravitationally controlling the members of the periodic table of elements that we at least recognize, if not understand. That sounds like that Hebrews 1.3, that he holds it all together. Colossians 1, sustained by him. It says something, some, there's some kind of gravitational control to the periodic table of elements that we recognize but we don't understand. Like dark energy, it is simply called dark matter since we don't know what it, what it is either. Between the two, dark energy and dark matter, the standard model of the cosmos accepted by most astronomers today admittedly can't account for about 95% of what it postulates is, quote, out there. Wow. Now, why I read all of that, that last part, was this. We have only just barely begun to scratch the surface of the glory of God. Even science can't explain, by his word, 95% of what's out there. And even the 5% that it can explain... Blows your mind. And it's probably still only scratching the surface of that. you gotta, you got to think, as, as we come to the conclusion of all this, how do we even stand upright? I mean, by the grace of God, you know, he, he, he saves us, he transforms us, he fills us with his life... But if we really, really, really got hold of the glory of God, it'd be like Isaiah. As Isaiah 6, yeah. the seraphim and all them, just holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Revelation tells us that there's coming a day when we're all going to be at, we're going to be before the throne of the Lord, the throne of the Lamb, and that's all we're going to be able to do is fall before him in worship. But this point, you've made it, I've made it. Let's just make it one more time as we close. In the end of all this glory, what we see God keep saying is this. I am here. Know me. Trust me. Let me save you, heal you, love you. Come and share in my glory. And I give you an example. I've been reading from Psalm 40. Let me read the end of it. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, 
The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There's no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And what that's telling us is this. We're not there yet. I don't know how we can stand upright and not be on our face all the time. There's still parts of us that are undone, and there's parts of our heart that aren't given over to God, but if we can just allow God to enlarge our heart, to fill us with more of him, there is no living like that kind of living that Psalm 40 has just described for us today. I think what you mean is Isaiah 40? Isaiah 40, yeah. Because I was trying probably to, Psalm 42. I was trying to follow along in Psalm 40. I'm like, man, Psalm 40 is good, but I'm not seeing that anywhere in here. But when you said mount up with wings as eagles, I said Isaiah 40. But I lost everybody out there. It's it's Go okay. Back to Isaiah 40. The, the verses were right, and so um, I think my my closing thought, what my takeaway from when you were reading, because the verse that I referenced that, oh yeah, that's Isaiah 40. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. We fall down prostrate. We can't help but just worship God. We are we are overfilled with the glory of God. And God comes by in his strength and says, you're going to mount up. I've got something for you to do. I'm glad you're filled with my glory. Now let me lift you to do your created purpose. And I love, I believe it's in John 17, uh, or excuse me, uh, John uh, 15, it's either John 15, 16, or 17. <laughs> Jesus references, and he or talks. all of it. It's all good. I think it's John 15 that he references and he talks about how that as we go and as we abide in him, we bring forth fruit to the glory of the Father. So as we are overcome and overwhelmed with the glory of God, we are stricken with worship, and then God lifts us up to do a work in us to bring even more glory to his name. So we get to be a participant in the glory of God. It's an amazing thing. Well, I, I was in Psalm 145 this morning, and it would be a great place to turn to now and talk about how we glorify God from our own lives, but we don't have time for that. But I would just close by saying this. The glory of God is the purpose of man. The glory of God should be the point of our preaching, and the glory of God should be the passion of our hearts. And that is what we need to help bring the church back to in, this, in these final days of the age. Most definitely. And we thank you for joining us on today's program. We hope that you'll tune in with us each and every day right here on Daybreak Devotions as Pastor Mike and I will discuss various topics in God's Word. If you've got any questions, comments, we would love to hear from you at Devotion at gmail.com.